Wings for the game. Boom. Cash back. New lucky jersey. Boom. Cash back. Even a last-minute ice run can score you some cash back when you use your debit card. And yes, we said debit card. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can earn cash back on everyday purchases. Look, in sports, it's hard to predict who's taking the W, but you know what's guaranteed to win? Discover Cashback Debit. Oh, and did I mention there are no fees? Period. I'm telling you, this one is a game changer. Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. New midweek fancast for you. Jay Patton Drancer here as the Stanley Cup continues with game number two as we record this on Wednesday morning. And Tom, we saw NHL voting. It wasn't the big glitzy award show from Vegas, but these are the times we live in. And hopefully next year we'll be able to get back to those sorts of things and those sorts of events. But a little bit of Canuck news involved, and that is that uh, Nils Hooglander, as uh, we've come to know that we're supposed to call him, uh, top 10 in Rookie of the Year. I know early in the season there was that uh, discussion about uh, would he be a fourth straight Calder finalist for the Canucks. Didn't happen, but uh, got some votes and finished eighth in uh, what's a fairly impressive class of freshmen in the National Hockey League this season. Yeah, it was a good class, but I actually think eight underrates him. I had him fourth on my ballot behind Nedeljkovic, Robertson, and Kaprizov, and obviously I think that's the right placement for him. He was also snubbed from the all-rookie team, but when you look at Josh Norris's production and how heavily it was dependent on getting a ton of PP1 ice time for a much leaner, um, you know, top-end offensive team, right? I, I mean, breaking into Canucks PP1 and breaking into Senators PP1, um, you know, very different tasks, even if you, as, as I do personally, like would take Ottawa's bottom six over Vancouver's in a heartbeat, right? Um when you look at even strength scoring, I thought Hoaglander had Josh Norris by a little bit, which is why Norris appeared fifth on my Calder ballot. Uh, but look, there were some really good goaltending performances too. So, I, I mean, look, not a ton to complain about, but I do think that eighth was a little bit shortchanging a player who had a massive impact on a Canucks team. Uh, now, look, I don't think a single Canucks player or 
or personnel, right? Green and Jim Benning included received a single awards vote in any category. Uh, that to me is uh, a really a marker of just how brutal this season was to not even get a stray homer vote, <laughs> you know, uh, and granted there were only two homers in the, in the class. I mean, me and Patrick Johnson were the only members of the Vancouver chapter with votes, but nonetheless, uh, a pretty stunning uh, sort of fact uh, about the Canucks, uh, not a single vote for any Canuck player. Uh, Nate Schmidt got some Lady Bing consideration and, oh, right. and, okay. and Hoaglander here, uh, Rookie of the Year. And I think, I don't want to get too deep in it because we've discussed his season throughout. But again, I, I do think some perspective here, a 20-year-old, a second-round pick, top 10 in Rookie of the Year, like that's found money for the Vancouver Canucks. So, you know, I... I this is a good news story. Like, I don't think Canuck Twitter and Canuck fans should freak out because he wasn't higher in this list. Again, he was a terrific contributor to the Vancouver Canucks this season, and I'm glad it was reflected to some degree. Could it have been a little higher? Sure, I suppose. But uh, Correcting me and then repudiating me. I'm not, we're off to a good start. I'm not getting that. too worked up about all of this. Uh, quickly. He was too low. <laughs> Snubbed. Hoaglander <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> deserved better. Give me 4,000 um, 4, words today, Tom, on the snub, the Hoaglander snub. Uh, well, and, and, and next year is going to be interesting, too, because the Canucks will have a couple guys who could be candidates. Potentially Jack Rathbone, although... Canucks management's been doing all they can to pour cold water on the idea of penciling him in to the opening day lineup uh, in media appearances over the past month. And then, of course, Vasily Podkolzin, and we'll sort of see there. Uh, personally, I'm not expecting a ton offensively from him in, in his first year, and we know how much Rookie of the Year consideration comes down to that, to the counting stats, especially, you know, because you, you need the numbers. Like, you just need the numbers in a voting exercise, period. Uh, you're, you know, there, you, there are members voting who aren't going to have seen a guy play more than five, you know, two or five times. So um, anyway, be interesting to see next season. Perhaps the Canucks can, you know, do the four of five thing next year. Um, so people will have to hold on to that while nursing their wounds from the vicious Hoaglander snub. I think Cole Caulfield uh, kind of has head start on rookie of the year for next season. No kidding. Well, I know it. Don't forget, like making that positive first impression of the playoffs, like that matters. McCarr, yeah, I mean, Kel McCarr had yeah. that jump. So it uh, totally. Yeah. Uh, how did your val- how did your ballots look? I know you posted them, but uh, just uh, if you can consolidate here on the pod, uh, we saw that McDavid was a unanimous choice, which is kind of cool as uh, the Hart Trophy winner. <laughs> but did you see that he wasn't a unanimous choice for first t- team All NHL? I didn't. There was a stray vote for Sidney Crosby for first team all NHL. Um, I don't think we've, I don't think the PHWA has publicized ballots yet, but that's, that's a, that's an incongruity that I'm going to be eager to identify personally. Um, Not to criticize any of my esteemed colleagues ballots. Just that one had me shaking my head a little bit. I had I had McDavid Matthews, Barkov, McKinnon, Marchand for the Hart trophy. Marchand had an incredible season, truly unbelievable. And I had Barkov ahead of McKinnon. I think there was eight of a PHWA voters who had Barkov in the top three. So a bit of a niche vote, but um, not completely outside uh, the consensus. And then for the Norris, I had Adam Fox, number one, Kale McCarr, number two, Charlie McAvoy, number three, Jacob Chikorin, number four, and Adam Pellick, 
number five. I was the only Adam Pellick was like my Nick Paul vote. Like I was the only person who who gave Adam Pellick a vote. But I'm right. Like he he deserved more consideration than he got uh, from my colleagues, frankly. And so it goes. I mean, I think Pellick drives that pair. That's sort of why I, I put him there. And then I had Shea Webador. Uh, Shea Webador. Oh, it returned. It returned. I had Shea Theodore sixth. Um, which, uh, which, you know, factored into my all NHL team voting. I had, I had him on the third team, all NHL. Um, you know, I just didn't think Victor Hedman's defensive results were up to his usual level. That's why I left him off the ballot. He ultimately finished third in Norris balloting. And where were you on the Vasilevsky flurry battle in goal? Oh, I had, I mean, the PHWA, gave it to Vasilevsky by a fair margin, right? It wasn't that close when you look at all team NHL. It was Vez- in Vesna voting, it was very close and Flurry edged Vasilevsky. Um I you know, I, I think that's I think the GM's got that wrong, but good to see. I mean, you you can't be upset for a guy like Marc Andre Fleury, um, you know, getting recognized at this stage of his career and with everything he's gone through and the bounce back season he authored this year. I mean, what a great story. I, I don't have any problem with him taking home the Vesna, but, you know, among the many people he robbed this season, one of them is Andrei Vasilevsky. <laughs> and, and so it goes, you know, which pivots to sort of talking about the cup final, which I want to do just briefly. But you know how Ian Clark talks a lot about and has talked a lot in media appearances and and I've talked to him for a story that I'll run, you know, in the months to come about how one thing he wants from his goaltenders is to conduct themselves in a way that buoys the team, right? Like that gives the team a boost, that gives them confidence, that looks relaxed and comfortable and, you know, provides inspiration is, is Clark's word to the team in front of them. And I don't know, I don't know that I've ever seen a guy do it better than Andre Vasilevsky did in game one. Like Andre Vasilevsky, he's always making those crazy faces, you know, <laughs> like he's always just like, he always just looks insane. Apparently he conducts himself like a, like a goaltending robot, like just in terms of the way that he's so dialed in all the time into his craft from everything from the way he warms up to the way he practices to the way he conducts himself on the ice. And there was one save he made and it was a, Ooh, I can't remember the shooter, but a shooter put it into his glove and he was just so well positioned that he made the glove save without needing to move his glove. Right. And as the skater skated around the net, you know, shaking their head, Vasilevsky like briefly moved his glove into the guy's path. You know, just to like make sure he saw like I didn't even work for that. You know, there's this like imperious way he's carrying himself. And I just fucking loved it. It was one of my favorite things in game one. He's incredible. The, the, the lightning having the best goaltender in the league, in addition to everything else they have, makes them a little bit unlike anything I can remember seeing in hockey over the past 25 years. Right. Like the Detroit Red Wings had Osgood. You know, Martin Brodeur played for the Devils, and that was great, but the Devils didn't score a ton. You know, I I guess Patrick Waugh behind the abs is the closest analogy, but I I just can't remember a team having this many weapons and advantages over every opponent. It's it's really quite something. Well, I, I had a discussion yesterday with a buddy of mine, and it just speaks to the talent level on this Tampa team that, like, Steven Stamkos is an afterthought. 
right? Like nobody talks about Steven Stamkos. Yeah, like 18 points, 19 games, 60, whatever. A 60 goal scorer in their lineup, 45 <laughs> not that long ago. Like two seasons ago, he had 45 goals, which is incredible in today's NHL. But that wasn't his best season. He had a 60 goal season on his resume. And people are talking about the, you know, the, the Conn Smythe winner. Well, is it going to be Vasilevsky? Will it be Braden Point? Maybe it's Kucherov. Hedman got it last year. Like nobody, like honestly, you talk to people about Tampa, Stamkos' name doesn't even come up. I know. It's incredible. He's basically, he's based, I mean, first of all, two things about Tampa and Steven Stamkos. Stamkos is on that line with Sorelli and Alex Kalorn. And based on the star power, the name recognition of that line, you'd think they're the second line behind Palat, Kucherov, and Point. But they're not. Not by ice time. The second line is Goudreau, Jan Gord, and Blake Coleman. And, and Goudreau is a guy who can play center, right? He's playing on the wing mostly, mostly Gord's the center. But, I mean, Gaudreau's a guy who can play center, and he's playing, he's fifth, fifth in even strength ice time per game on this Tampa Bay Lightning team. Like, man, is that guy going to get paid if he wants to, right? Like, Barkley Gaudreau's going to have bitters, as he should. And, yeah, just a thing I was thinking about as I was looking over sort of, you know, under the hood of what Tampa's done in this playoffs, I was like, Really? Really, Barkley Gaudreau is fifth, fifth in even strength ice time, like ahead of the guys I just mentioned, Sorelli, Colhorn, Stamkos. Blew my mind. That blew my mind, j As Tampa does on so many nights, and, and they were good in game one. The funny thing for me is that I think, you know, people will look at the final score and the 5-1 um, it was a two-on hockey game into the third period. Like, you know, Montreal was doing Montrealish things. They were there. They were one shot away. And then Tampa became Tampa and exploded and, and win it. But going. when were they ever going to get that shot? That's the, like that's, they just had no, one-way traffic all night. That's the thing for me is that, you know, if you're Montreal, like Tampa's going to get theirs, right? Like, I, I don't think you're that yeah, worried. Sure. I don't think you're that worried that Tampa scored five on you. They scored eight against the Islanders. Like, that's totally. Tampa. But it was more than 19 shots and the fact that they had 15 shots for the night with about five minutes to go on those occasions where Montreal might be able to control Tampa's offense and keep them to two, can Montreal score three against this Lightning team? And that's the, to me, that's the bigger question in this series. And and the answer is probably not, in my opinion. But one thing I want to give Montreal credit for is that they had the stomach for that game, right? Like through and through. Results aside, five on five, and in terms of their defensive play, and in terms of their battle level, their compete, their physicality, uh, the fact that they threw a punch back at Tampa Bay, right? Like when it was two nothing, the Habs, it wasn't just the goal they scored. Like there were a ton of really good chances. Uh, Gallagher breaking down and, and sort of getting that contested backhand off. Um, you know, Josh Anderson had a couple, he had a great game. He had a couple good chances. Like, Montreal took Tampa Bay's haymaker and started punching back. They had the stomach for the fight, but this lightning team has become like, I think this lightning team, we've seen how many different ways they can win. I actually think they've become a team that is willing to play your game, right? And beat you at it, right? So the Montreal Canadiens play this like gutty, competitive, passionate, you know, like they've got playoff grit game. So the, the Tampa Bay Lightning were like, okay, we'll play that game and we'll beat you at your own game. Yeah. 
just like they did to the Islanders, beating them one nothing in a game seven and scoring a shorthanded goal, right? Just like they did against Carolina, turning it into this high-octane track meet and, and beating them at their game, right? Like, however you want to attack the Tampa Bay Lightning, I, I feel like they accept it. They, instead of imposing their own will, they're just like, okay, you want to play that game? We can also beat you that way. And and I feel like that's such a dis- that must be such a dispiriting thing to experience as a playoff opponent. Um, they've reached that level. And I think you have to have won to have reached that level. Like, I think you have to have won a cup and then you can get this. Once you've done it, it's like, we are here to work. Our job is to win. You know, like we, we are in the business of winning Stanley Cups. And this is how we go about our business. We, we're not just going to beat you. We're going to beat you in the most dispiriting way possible early in the series and try and snuff the hope out of you. Um, that's not to say that they can't be beat. It's just to say that they've got that aura about them now. They've never had it before because they'd never won this group at, at least had never won. And now, oh boy, like, I mean, there's a lot of work to do this off season to keep this group together. But if they can, this group looks like they're going to have legs, like, you know, late nineties, Detroit type multi-season legs as a true elite team, like a team that's going to be really, really difficult to get past. For years and years to come. Someday, someday it'll return here to to Vancouver and we can talk about the Canucks in, in those same glowing terms, but uh, that's a ways away. We know that. Wings for the game. Boom. Cash back. New lucky jersey. Boom. Cash back. Even a last minute ice run can score you some cash back when you used your debit card. And yes, we said debit card. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can earn cash back on everyday purchases. Look, in sports, it's hard to predict who's taking the W, but you know what's guaranteed to win? Discover Cashback Debit. Oh, and did I mention there are no fees? Period. I'm telling you, this one is a game changer. Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Uh, Tom... Ryan Nugent Hopkins, the Nuge, is staying put in Edmonton. He goes uh, a max term deal with the Oilers, eight years. Vancouver hockey legend. Vancouver hockey legend, Ryan Nugent Hopkins. Burnaby's own, yes. Uh, Eight years, 41 mil total, plus the hammer. Uh, He gets the the no-movement clause to stay in Edmonton. And and look, we know the struggle the Oilers have in retaining free agents, a bigger struggle to attract free agents. And so when they can keep one of their own in the fold, especially a guy that's a legit top six forward, you know, they have to see it as a win, but they also 
had to go to the wall to to make it happen. I mean, they they save a little bit on the annual average value, but eight years for a twenty eight year old player uh, and the no movement clause. Like, quite frankly, I just thought in flat cap world we may not see max deals anywhere. So, how surprised were you at not so much the money, but the term here for the Nuge? So, at the very least, it is a contract where you look at it and you say, "Okay, I understand what both sides got." Right? The Edmonton Oilers trimmed a million dollars off of Ryan Nugent Hopkins' cap hit versus his deal the year prior, and Ryan Nugent Hopkins made extra money for that expense because he's signed through the age of 36. Um, so that's better than the Jeff Skinner deal. Like the deals that I really hate are the deals that I see. And I'm like, what, what did the team get from that? Like what, why, why would I understand why the player would sign it? Why would the team like, at least it's not one of those. That's the best thing I can say for it. Uh, I like Ryan Nugent Hopkins a lot. I think he's a really bright top six quality player. I like the versatility I think he's a good fit there, but man, eight years a term. Like, I don't think I don't think we're gonna have to wait till he's 36 for that deal to start to look pretty dubious, right? I, I think there's gonna come a time in four years, like how, at the midway point, where he better reinvent himself as a top end defensive centerman, right? Like that's that's where this goes. We've seen too many deals age so badly. And people say, well, it doesn't even matter if they don't win in the next three, like they're gonna lose McDavid, who cares? And it's like, well. If you think that's a risk, then a deal like this might harm your ability to pivot. Uh, you know, I I just think I just think the term involved is so risky, and and with some front end risk too, just because of how quickly these days, especially, we see top NHL caliber scorers not at the non star level really quickly become diminished as as they age. So yeah, I mean, yeah, I understand it. I understand why Edmonton did it. Um, at least they got something in the in the in the transaction. But man, I think this is a deal that's going to be the like a model. This is a model deal for what teams should be avoiding. You know, if you have to go a little bit longer on term to keep a cap hit down, fine. But make that the six year deal. You know, uh, it's worth the extra five hundred k to to trim a year off that deal. It's worth the extra million to trim two off that year. Uh, that's my view of it anyway. All right. So come on a little journey with me then. Uh, because two years from now, the 26-year-old Bo Horvat will be 28. See, there's some simple math there. He's 26 now. And in two years, he'll be 28. And he'll be a pending UFA. Yep. This is where I want to drop back to the Canucks. That- with probably more cachet around the NHL, by the way. Yeah, although it's remarkable, and I know they're different styles of players, uh, but both have been second-line centers. Uh, the Nudes has moved to the wing and played a fair bit with McDavid, but their offensive production is actually remarkably similar uh, at yeah. right now, and they were both born in early April, so Horvat really will be exactly like two years behind the Nuge on this curve. The point is that pending UFAs, like that's the hammer, right? Like they can say to these teams, yeah. if if you want me, if you want to keep me, you're the only team that can give me this max deal with the eighth year. Like that's what I want. And so two years from now, I mean, the Canucks could find themselves in a similar boat with their captain. The Nuge is an alternate captain in Edmonton. So he's got a letter on his jersey. 
you know, I just kind of, I'm not trying to be alarmist, but this is potentially the, the conversations that the Canucks are going to have to have with Bo Horvat in two years' time. Heck yeah, exactly. You know what? It's a great analogy, and you're and you're dead on. And Bo Horvat's going to get paid, especially because he's brandishing quickly a reputation around the league as a big game player. He plays the game the right way, in the opinion of most in the industry. Um, yeah, I mean, Bo Horvat's going to have a market, and keeping him is not going to be straightforward. Like, not only not only does the club have to navigate that eight year thing and navigate it with extreme trepidation, because Again, it's worth paying a little bit more to have a six-year deal or, or a deal that's not a bulletproof, ironclad NMC that lasts through the life of the contract. Um, you know, maybe it lasts for the first four years and then becomes a limited NTC or what have you. Um, you know, you got to front load that deal. you got to avoid late signing bonus to give you some uh, buyout flex, which the Ryan Nugent Hopkins deal, Hopkins deal does do too in the last year anyway. There is no signing bonus, but yeah, I mean, navigating that is not going to be easy and retaining Horvat in the event that the Canucks don't improve significantly in the next two years is not going to be easy either uh, because, you know, I, I mean, he's made no secret about it. This is a man who is sick of losing, period. So uh, yeah, <laughs> not to mention he's repped by Pat Morris who did the Markstrom contract. Like there's a lot, there's a lot to navigate here, and it's not alarmist to point this out. I mean, these are all complicated. I'm not saying Horvat is on his way out or wants to leave or anything like that. I'm just saying that you know, navigating these issues, and especially with guys his age, uh, you know, prime aged UFAs, is complicated. And this is another reason why you know I like the eight year deal, right? Like I like the eight year second contract when you can do it. And the Canucks, I don't think, have the flexibility to do it with Pedersen or Hughes at the moment because, you know, the goal of that deal is effectively to mine. Like, Horvat signed, what, a six-year deal for his second contract? Yes. So pretty yep. long. Yep. Pretty long. That's a good outcome. But, you know, your best bet, in my view, is to, like, the goal of every team should be to mine the best years of a player's career at the lowest possible rate, Right. And minimize their back end risk, and the and the best way to do that is with a long tail, like a max tail second contract. I mean, Horvat it for two more years at five five is great, but Horvat for four more years at six is even better, right? Um, or six five. So, you know, a good example of uh, of some of the considerations that the Canucks will be navigating too with Pedersen and Hughes uh, this summer, but. Yeah, you're right. That's a really good analogy and definitely something the Canucks are going to have to, you know, tread cautiously around because I don't think you want to sign a 28-year-old Bo Horvat for eight years by any means. Right. And, and I mean, that's the danger is these guys, they can get old in a hurry. And, like, the Canucks have just come through and they're not out from under the Louis Erickson contract yet. And I'm not suggesting that Bo is going to turn into the next Louis Erickson. But, you know, for all the same things that you just mentioned about Ryan Nugent Hopkins, like, it looks good. You know, I saw a lot, saw a lot of reaction out of Edmonton. Like, keeping the Nuge at just over 5 mil. Yeah, for the next couple of seasons, that's great. But I'm with you. Back end of that deal, back end of any of these deals, that's the danger. But that is life in the National Hockey League trying to negotiate uh, with high-profile UFAs. Hey, 
we talked a little bit about it, but it hadn't been posted uh, when we recorded the last VanCast. And we got into great detail on your aggressive approach for the Canucks this offseason. You had the partner piece, which was the more conservative look. And you sort of listed off on the last pod, you know, all those guys that were placed on waivers just before last season. And it was a collection of names that probably... You know, almost all of them could have helped the Vancouver Canucks. You got into a little more detail, obviously, in the piece itself. Uh, maybe we can just kind of run through what you thought were some of the keynotes of of a more conservative approach for the Canucks this summer. Now that we're knocking on the door of July, like this is it. Final day of June. July is here tomorrow. And we know that July is going to be a, a monster month on the hockey calendar. Well, the key thing that differentiates the two approaches, because there's parts of both within both. Like, I do think maybe the best possible offseason for the Canucks is actually a blend of our aggressive and our conservative uh, approaches as we laid them out. But the real difference starts with reallocating cap space, right? Like, it starts with taking the 19.3 that the Canucks have committed to Luongo recapture, dead money, nothing you can do about it, Beagle, Erickson, Roussel, Holtby. And in the aggressive approach, you turn that into something of real hockey value. In the conservative approach, you accept that those moves are too expensive, right? Like you can't do, maybe it turns out that you can't do Beagle for Marcus Nudavara, right? And save save the um, Florida Panthers, you know, $2 million. Maybe they're not interested in that $2 million in savings and they'd rather have the depth on the blue line that Nudavara offers. Um, you know, maybe if you add a mid-round pick, that's still not going to get it done. Maybe it's the same story with Tyler Pitlick or Colin Miller or on and on down the list, right? Maybe some of the ideas we hatch to use Vancouver's money as opposed to hockey assets, um, you know, fa- fall on deaf ears as Jim Benning makes his calls around the league. And in the event that that happens and it's just too prohibitive to reallocate cap space, the conservative offseason is a plan for how the Canucks can still make the playoffs with almost a quarter of their cap space committed to non-contributing players or, or players that, according to Dom LeCision's model, combine for negative 1.24 wins, actively harming the team's playoff chances. So how do they do it? And the, and the conservative offseason really posits that the number one route for the Canucks is in taking a massive volume of affordable shots on flawed players that could nonetheless provide real value to the team, undervalued pieces, pieces that are bought out or left unqualified, uh, you know, European free agents. Uh, and, and we list some of the targets too. Um, but that's really going to be the meat of what the Canucks are doing. There, there are restrictions in place, but sometimes the most creative outcomes come from, from being restricted, from being limited. And, you know, this team hasn't done well unfettered, frankly. Right. Like this is not a team that's used their cap space all that wisely when they've had it available to them. Uh, that's probably putting it kindly, JPEG. And this offseason, anyway, they're going to be facing a much different scenario. Uh, it's a challenge unlike any they've faced to this point as a management group. Perhaps, perhaps with, you know, fewer options, uh, the club will, you know, have better outcomes. I, I Maybe not, probably not, but it's at least... It's at least worth considering, and I do think that it matches with the tenor of, you know, ideation and, and conversations that are happening internally within the hockey ops group. I, I do think there's an, a, a, a pretty solid understanding of 
how they need to proceed here. And, and how they need to proceed here is to uh, effectively give up on the perfect player. The, the perfect target is not coming. You know, I see every time a big-name player gets, you know, linked to any type of player movement, the Vancouver market at the moment is like, could they trade for Tarasenko? Ninth overall for Tarasenko? Would you trade ninth overall for Tarasenko? Would you trade it for Sam Reinhart? How about, how about Seth Jones? And it's just like, guys, none of these players can come here because if you get Tarasenko 7-5 or you get the 7 that Reinhardt represents or you get Seth Jones at what? He's like at 6 uh, for next season and then you have to extend him. Like you do those deals and it's like, okay, we got Seth Jones. Now we have $2 million to rebuild our middle 6, right? Oh, we got we got Tarasenko at 7-5. Now we have $1 million to rebuild our blue line, right? It's like... That's not how you win. Those those deals do not allow the Canucks to take a step forward. They need so much that they actually just need to find guys who can do those jobs, maybe not perfectly, but well enough, for almost no money. And that's unless they can find a way to Houdini out of the straitjacket they've tied on themselves by committing a ton of bad money to a variety of, you know, bottom of the lineup pieces and a backup bullpen. You know, it's interesting as I read the piece and, you know, you, you float some names out there of guys that may not be qualified by their teams, players that are over in Europe. And one guy that jumped out at me off that list was the name Brennan Manel. Right. And like, I've thought about this and we've talked about it because you had mentioned Brad Hunt on an earlier pod. Like, it, this isn't so much even about the NHL. This is about... Abbotsford and who's going to play for this farm team because depth is an issue for the Canucks. They have to populate their farm team. And Brennan Manel spent two pretty decent seasons with the Vancouver Giants. Like there is a connection already to the lower man. He's a Minnesota guy. He was playing in Russia mm-hmm. last year, five NHL games for the Minnesota Wild. But I, I think if all else is equal and the Canucks can find some guys that have ties to the Lower Mainland, to the Fraser Valley, to this area. There's just a little bit more value added as you're trying to launch this farm team out in Abbotsford. And Brandon Manel put up like some really nice numbers. He's a white shot defenseman, 24. And he's put up some solid numbers in the American Hockey League. Hasn't had the chance at the NHL, just the five games with Minnesota. But that was a name that jumped off me. And I was like, hey, some name recognition. Because for so long, you've had the Vancouver Giants exist. You've had the Vancouver Canucks. And there really hasn't been much of a link between the two. Right? Like Mario Bliznak, uh, Kevin Connaughton. Yep. That, those are sort of the two ties between the organizations. And Connaughton never played for the Canucks. Um, again, I, nothing to lose. But like that's the kind of guy. But when I saw that name, I was like, damn. Like there's a guy that has some connections already to this area like what would the risk be for the Canucks in taking a flyer on that kind of player? Totally. And, and a, probably an affordable acquisition cost. And, you know, again, I'm not saying Brennan Minnell is Brian Rafalski. Right? No, no. <laughs> by any means, no. by any means. But that's not the exercise. The exercise is not to find Tim Thomas or Artemi Panarin or Brian Rafalski to name some of the superstar, you know, European free agents who've come over. The exercise is to find Vancouver's Jacob McDonald. You know who Jacob McDonald is? Played for the Avs? Do you? Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Jacob McDonald is like a class AHL defenseman, right? Just like the absolute best AHL defenseman. But when he plays in the NHL, 
He also gets really, really good results, uh, or at least outputs, in both areas. Like, in both areas of the ring. Um, this season for the Avs, he played 33 games. He had a goal and eight assists, was plus 14, like, played real minutes. You know, like, played real minutes as a depth guy. Um, you know, yeah, prescribed ice time sometimes, but he had a stretch of games where he was playing 18, 19 minutes when, when they had some COVID issues. And they were winning those games. They were an absolute buzzsaw. Were they an absolute buzzsaw because of Jacob McDonald? No. But Jacob McDonald did his job and did it really well at, you know, um, a league minimum contract. And he signed for a league minimum contract again next season. If he's an everyday third pair guy for you, like, beautiful. Now, Jacob McDonald doesn't make sense for the Canucks. He's a lefty puck mover. He's kind of like, you know, a, a lower end version of Quinn Hughes. And the Canucks will hope that Jack Rathbone can be their Jacob McDonald in-house. But, you know, a guy like Brendan Minnell is a righty, right? And I don't think he's like, from from what I gather, uh, you know, I, I don't think he's, you know, uh, got the narrowest gap and is eliminating offensive players in the defensive end. But I think he can do well enough. Uh, I think there's people who think he can do well enough. And, and, you know, that's the type of player that the Canucks need to get. Like a, a guy who's a decent bet to be an NHL level performer, even if they're only plugged in in spot duty over 30 games, right? Like the gap between getting what Jacob McDonald did for 33 games for the Avs and getting what the Canucks got over 18 from Jalen Chatfield, like that makes a huge difference for a good team, right? Uh, the Canucks need to upgrade that, that depth level too. That's a target that I like to do that job. And he's not the only one. There, there's a few other targets that I think are worth considering, including a guy in, you know, Lawrence Pilot, who's a lefty, um, Buffalo Sabres on his rights. Um, you know, Chris Weidman, I don't really think is an NHL player, but I think he's at least a quad A guy and, and might be worth a shot if he can figure out, you know, some things having been, you know, having been hungry to get back to the NHL considering the experience he's been through. So, yeah, I mean, these are the types of, you know, aisles that the Canucks need to shop in this offseason. And, and it's not pretty. And the opportunity cost is high. And maybe it's not enough. But if you can take eight swings, you'll probably hit a couple singles, right? It's just like the draft. It's just like the draft. Like sometimes the team that signs the most bets gets the most hits and looks like geniuses, even if they missed on more than they made, because, you know, that's that's the nature of hockey. Uh, the best drafting team is the team with the most draft picks. Like, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> um, so the Canucks just need to apply that concept to free agency this year. And that's really the core of the conservative perfect offseason in my mind. Yeah. And, and names like Brennan Manel are important because like I saw Dollywall reporting yesterday that Brogan Rafferty is probably going to explore his options. You know, didn't get much of a chance <clears throat> here this year with the COVID season and all and, and gotten the one game and didn't look particularly good early in the season against Montreal. But like Brogan Rafferty's 26 now, right? Like if it was going to happen, it probably would have happened for him. And and so that's life. Like if he wants to explore his options, so be it. But the Canucks need people to fill his spot on the farm and 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 give them an opportunity. And so uh, I think Ashton Sautner's in the same boat there. Like these are guys that have been in the organization for a couple of years, but you know, they've earned the right to look around, but again, somebody's got to wear the uniform out in Abbotsford. Somebody's got to play, and you play well enough, maybe you earn an opportunity 
with the big league team at some point along the way. So I thought that was instructive. There's some names there. If people haven't checked out that piece, it is available at The Athletic. We should also mention other pod options here at The Athletic and The Athletic app. Dave Haxtall, the new head coach, the first head coach of the Seattle Kraken, joining Scott Burnside and Pierre Lebron on the two-man advantage edition of The Athletic Hockey Show. Also, an important conversation with Katie Strang and Rick Westhead from TSN uh, on the Chicago Blackhawks sexual assault investigation. That's also on the two-man advantage edition of The Athletic Hockey Show. So you can check those out if you're looking for other pod options. Tom, uh, I have a personal announcement here that I got to finish up with. And uh, in some ways, oh? I, yeah, some ways I can't, but well, you already know, but uh, I, I want to tell no, you. I, don't ruin the bet. <laughs> <laughs> this doesn't come as a surprise to you, but uh, it might to the listeners and the VIPs. And by the time people hear this, you may have seen the tweet that I put out on Wednesday morning that I will be stepping away from the VanCast at the end of July. This is my decision, uh, and I'll have more to say on some other things in short order about uh, my future, but for now, I just I, I want to get the word out, unfortunately, that July will be my final month here with the VanCast, and I, mean, I certainly want to thank you. Uh, I want to thank Jeff Demet, our producer. Uh, I want to thank the powers that be at The Athletic. When 1040 was shuttered in February, The Athletic stepped in right away. And asked, what can we do for you guys? They recognized that there was a void in the market in terms of sports talk and Canucks content. And they pushed to get this pod to three times a week. Like, we didn't have to push for it. It was offered up, which allowed me to invoice 50% more than I had been doing uh, when we were twice weekly. And that meant a whole lot to me and my family. So, I want to thank everybody at The Athletic. And I'll save the goodbyes for a month from now. But... I also just want to take a moment to mention how much it meant to me to be a part of the athletic family to launch and then run a subsequent season of the Botchford Project. I mean, that has been really a highlight of a difficult year uh, covering the Vancouver Canucks, but the fact that we got the Botchford Project out and, you know, I did it under the athletic banner as as you did as well. So uh, that meant a ton. I'm two for two on picking podcasting partners or, or maybe you guys have chosen me either way. Uh, it's been an absolute blast to hit record and just shoot the shit with you three times a week now. And, you know, I got my feet wet with Botch and the Patcast and wasn't sure where I would go from there and could not have found a better podcasting partner. And it has been a, just, you know, when I think of what we've accomplished, 200 shows the other day. And, and look, like sometimes you do have to pat yourself on the back. But consistently ranking high among sports podcasts in Canada on iTunes, this is a single market pod with a narrow focus that holds its own against some of the biggest names in this space, like national pods with big names, with budgets. And I'm <laughs> telling you, like, it's always a thrill to check the iTunes charts or pod charts or any of the tracking services and see the VanCast kicking ass and rubbing shoulders with the big boys. And, and we just, we have the VIPs to thank for that. Like, we have the fun putting out the show, but it's been so well received over a couple of years. So please know that this wasn't easy, but this is the right thing for me and my family at this point in time. Yeah. And just want to say, uh, to add to that, that, you know, this is bittersweet, right? Fundamentally, fundamentally, JPAT, this market is better off when you are in it and when you are working 
full-time covering the Canucks and we're so thrilled for you. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to say more than that. I want to save your surprise for when it comes, but I, I, we're so thrilled for you. And yet we are obviously uh, despondent to lose you on the VanCast. I mean, this was so much fun. You know, we, we were always friendly, right? We were always friends, but to get a chance to just shoot the shit, talk hockey and do it with a level of obsessive detail, right? And, and more than anything, I think that what we share and, and why we've always got along and why I think this podcast worked so well and so many VIPs responded to it, like an absolute commitment, right? To covering this team like it matters, right? No matter what, it matters. It matters to Canucks fans. It matters in Vancouver. And I think we always worked to cover the team in that manner. Um, I was proud to do it with you, man. And and I think I've improved a ton because of your friendship, uh, your mentorship, and your contributions in this space. So I just want to say congratulations. I want to say thank you. And I'm really thrilled, too, that we get to do another month. Like, I'm thrilled that we get to finish off this cycle, right? We'll have done two complete seasons, two of the weirdest seasons in NHL history. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The VanCast will have been along for the entire ride of two full cycles. Um, and thereafter, VIPs, I-, I can't tell you what's next for the VanCast beyond that the VanCast will continue. I- I'm just not exactly sure yet uh, what it will look like. So um, bear with us. We will figure it out and we'll continue putting out a great product, uh, even though we won't have, you know, uh, the forefather of the podcast, Mr. J-Pat uh, uh, in tow. And I look forward to informing every one of those details as we go. But thrilled for you. Thrilled to have got to participate in this project with you over the past two years. Truly a highlight of my career. And uh, thank you so much for everything, bud. Well, thanks to you right back at you. And and I'm glad you you brought that up. We're going to finish up as strong as we started. Like, there's no doubt about that. July is going to be a busy month on the hockey calendar. There is no way we would leave the VIPs hanging or approach this with one foot out the door. That's not me. That's not us. So uh, let's go. July, one big hockey month to go here on the VanCast, and we will be all over everything uh, the Vancouver Canucks do from expansion to the draft itself into free agency buyouts and everything else, trades. So we'll continue to push out the pod that you have come to know and love uh, for one more month uh, the two of us check out our comment section for each podcast episode at the athletic app rate and subscribe to the vancast on apple and if you're not already a subscriber go to theathletic.com slash vancast receive a subscription for just 3.99 per month canada day tomorrow stanley cup final continues so lots uh, to chew on here in the days and weeks ahead for Drancer. It is J-Pat. As always, thanks so much for listening to another edition of the VanCast here at The Athletic and theathletic.com. Producer Jeff, no closing time allowed. <laughs> <laughs>